Before we begin today's podcast, I'm excited to let you, the audience, know about the newest initiative that our organization, Torch, has recently unveiled. We're giving away thousands of free Shabbat light switch covers to friends, to listeners, supporters, students, participants all over the world. Now, what is a Shabbat light switch cover? So it's basically a piece of plastic that magnetically clicks on top of a light switch and covers it for the duration of Shabbat to prevent any errant, any accidental flicking on or off of a light switch. Most modern light switches have a little plate that has two screws in it that fasten it to the wall. And someone invented a light switch cover that has two small magnets that are perfectly aligned with those screws so it clicks on so that it can be placed upon the light switches before Shabbat and prevent people from accidentally turning the lights on or off during Shabbat. So Torch, our organization, we went to China. We made a custom order of these light switch covers, and we're giving them out for free to our friends, to our listeners, to people exactly like you. And I think what's so wonderful about this project is that there's really something for everyone. You know, our organization, Torch, we cater to a very wide audience. We have listeners, we have students, we have friends that have never desecrated the Shabbat in their lives. They've been totally Shabbat observant since the day they were born. We also have listeners and students who have never observed a full Shabbat in their lives. Maybe they're aware of Shabbat. They're intrigued with the idea of Shabbat. They like the idea of having a sabbatical, but they're overwhelmed with the details. They don't want to commit to all at once. And we found that this project, this idea is really for everyone. If someone is fully Shabbat observant, this is going to help them that they don't trigger any accidental discharges. You know, it happens to everyone. You leave the room, you wake up in the middle of the night, you go to the bathroom, and you accidentally, almost like by autopilot, you flip the switch on, you flip the switch off, and you have this plastic plate that you put on before Shabbat, and it's going to help prevent such errant triggers of the light switch. If someone is not Shabbat observant, but maybe they want to get a taste of the flavor of Shabbat, they want to maybe dedicate one or two light switches in their home. It's going to be a small step towards making Shabbat more meaningful, towards maybe observing Shabbat a little bit more. And for someone like that, this too is for them. And I personally use these Shabbat light switch covers during the week. It has these amazing magnets. Who doesn't love magnets? And I love to click them together. It's such a satisfying clickety sound and feeling when it snaps together. Here's what it sounds like. You hear that? And you can play with it. Just such a fun toy to play with. And we're giving them out for free. So go to our website, torchweb.org. You'll see a banner on the homepage. Just fill out your information and we will ship you your very own Torch Shabbat light switch covers. We label it internally as the mitzvah maggots. We'll send it to you for free. You have nothing to lose. This is a free giveaway. There's no gimmicks. Get them for free. Check it out, torchweb.org. We are on the heels of a great American holiday, the holiday of Thanksgiving. And although the festival of Thanksgiving, the holiday of Thanksgiving, is actually not a Jewish holiday. In fact, it's even a discussion amongst the halachic authorities, you know, how much we can participate as Jews in this secular holiday. It's a separate discussion. But certainly, the theme of Thanksgiving, the theme of appreciation, the theme of gratitude, the theme of reflection that undergirds this secular holiday makes a very prominent and repeated appearances in Jewish literature. And I thought it would be a good time to talk a little bit about this subject, what the Torah says about appreciation and gratitude and Thanksgiving. I was thinking about how to frame the subject, and I think this is an interesting way to look at it. There's a very interesting teaching in the Midrash, at the very beginning of the Torah. Of course, the first word of the Torah, the word biracious, which means in the beginning or in the beginning of, the first word of the Torah, the Midrash goes on to find other words and other concepts and other subjects 
in Jewish literature that contain that same word, racious, beracious. And the Midrash tells us that every other subject, every other topic that contains the word racious, which means the beginning or the choice or the prime, every other subject really is being hinted at in the very first word of the Torah. And when it talks about beracious, God created in the beginning, it's actually hinting to us throughout Jewish literature when it says the word racious, referring to other things, it's hinting to us as to the reason why God created the world. Of course, once we accept the concept, the notion that the world has a creator, the next question is, okay, what's the purpose? What's the function? What's the reason? What's the objective? What's the goal of creation? And right away, at the beginning, the very first verse in the Torah, the very first word of the Torah, the Midrash opens up a whole discussion as to why God created the world. And it says, it lists, I think, five or six things that are all labeled with this same word, and the Midrash tells us this is hinting at the fact that these are the objectives of creation. So, for example, it talks about the Jewish people. The Jewish people are God's racious, his choice one, and therefore, at the core of creation, at the foundation of creation, the idea of the Jewish people and what we represent and what our our goal, our mandate, our mission is in this world, that's the reason why God created the world. Of course, it talks about Torah. Torah is also compared to racious. But there is... One outlier, shall we say, there is one idea, one concept, one mitzvah that the Midrash tells us is the reason why God created the world. And that is the mitzvah of Bikurim. The mitzvah of Bikurim is found in the book of Deuteronomy, chapter 26, verse 1. It talks about the Jewish people. They, of course, are on the banks of the Jordan, on the east side of the Jordan, so they're not quite in Israel. Moshe is about to pass, and he's starting to give them all the mitzvahs that they need to know once they enter the land, once they settle the land. And he tells them, it shall be when you come to the land that the Almighty gives you as an inheritance, you you conquer it, you settle it. And then, of course, everyone has their own parcel of land, everyone has their field, everyone starts producing crops, and you should take meratius, Again, that same word. From the beginning, from the choicest of, of the fruits of the ground, you take the first fruits and you're going to bring it to Jerusalem and you're going to give it to the Kohen. This is similar to the other mitzvot that relate to agriculture, the mitzvot of tithing, that certain portions of your produce, of your crop yield, are going to be designated for, for holy purposes, either to you yourself can eat in Jerusalem, you're going to give it to the Levite, you're going to give it to the poor person, or in this case, you're going to give it to the Kohen. But the description of this particular mitzvah, it's very unusual what it's describing here, what happens. So you are, of course, spending your time as a farmer, you're planting your certain produce or certain crops, and a certain subset of crops are included in this mitzvah, and those are only the seven special species or seven special products that the land of Israel is praised with. It doesn't apply for everyone. If you have an apple orchard, it doesn't count. Even an orange orchard doesn't count. It's only certain fruits and, and, and produce and crops that are included in this. And, of course, there's a whole cycle of the agricultural uh, year. You plant, but first you have to plow and prepare and till and whatever, and then you kind of wait. And... Please, God, if you have a good yield, things will start budding up. You'll have the the small uh, sproutlings start to bud. And eventually, you'll have, hopefully, a wonderful, bountiful yield at the end of the year cycle. So when things start to mature, when the first fruit starts to sprout, you have to right away take a string and wrap it around that fruit. That very first fruit, that's going to be the bakurim that you're going to bring to Jerusalem. Put it in a basket. You travel to Jerusalem and the, the, the Talmud describes how there's, you know, there's song and dance and this is a whole procession and you come to the Kohen and you present to him these fruits, these first fruits and he tastes it from you and then it launches into what happens next. You have a pronouncement that you make which seems to be a retrospective of, of, of Jewish history. You, you start talking about Laban, Jacob's father-in-law. How Laban tried to destroy the Jewish people. And the Jewish people, they eventually went down to Egypt and they lived there, even though they were very small in number, but they grew into a very mighty nation. 
And the Jewish people suffered under the Egyptians and we were tormented and we were oppressed and the Almighty heard our cries and he saved us. And he took us out of Egypt with an outstretched hand. Again, what does this have to do with the Bikurim? You bring the fruits and then we have this whole pronouncement about the whole history of the Jewish people. And he brings us to the land, a land flowing of milk and honey. And behold, you conclude your pronouncement by saying, and here I am presenting God, so to speak, with the first fruits of the land. And you place it before God. You bow before God. And you're happy. You're joyous with all the goodness that you have in your life. There's a whole description, a very unusual description, doesn't apply really to any other mitzvah that there's so many details surrounding what you have to do. There's so much ceremony, so much ritual surrounding this mitzvah of the first fruits of the Bikurim. And commentaries point out there's many differences between all agricultural laws and the Bikurim specifically. So first of all, it applies only once you conquer the land and once you settle the land, whereas all agricultural mitzvahs, they apply once you enter the land. It's once you're there, you're good. It also only applies to the seven special species of the land of Israel. You have this very unusual ceremony of tying the string around the budding first fruit. And then you have this declaration that talks about all the things that have happened to us since before we were even a nation. How Laban tried to stamp out Jacob and his family before the nation was able to flourish and turn into a great nation. And you talk about Egypt and the, and the Exodus. What is going on over here? And then we have this Midrash that says, oh, what, what you're seeing over here, this is why the Almighty created the world. This is it. What about Bikurim, what about this mitzvah warrants that it be classified as the reason why the Almighty created the world? So there's a three-word Rashi, I think, that opens up the subject for us and I think will be a nice portal into what we mean when we talk about gratitude, appreciation, things giving. What is the Jewish perspective on those critical concepts? So Rashi tells us, the reason why you make this pronouncement, the reason why we have this mitzvah, it's to declare to all, she'encha kafui tova, that you are not ingracious. You're not an ingrate. When God gives you good, you acknowledge it, you appreciate the goodness that God does. The essence of this mitzvah of Bikurim is all about appreciation and specifically to not be someone who is anti-appreciation, to not be someone who is contra-appreciation, to not be an ingrate, to not be ingracious, to not have a sense of entitlement, to acknowledge and to recognize and to declare your appreciation for God for all the goodness that he did, of course, you're celebrating this year's yield, this year's crop yield. But of course, once you're in the mode, once you are engaged in appreciation, you're already zooming out. You're talking about Laban, you're talking about the Exodus, you're talking about all the goodness that we've had. And you, you get into the mode of appreciation and you have this appreciation for God for all that he does for us. So what we're discovering here according to this, is that appreciation, gratitude, thanksgiving, these are not just nice things, kindness, it's it's to be wholesome, it's to be to be a good person. This lies at the very heart of the reason why the Almighty created the world, which is it's a fascinating statement. And we have to unpack that. We have to suggest the reason as to why that is so. But this really, I think, this this does augment the subject, it's not an isolated thing. It lies at the very heart of it all. Why? Why is the objective of creation to stamp out ingratitude and to embrace a worldview, a perspective of appreciation and gratitude? So I want to suggest an answer to this question by going back to the story of Adam and Eve. Of course, Adam and Eve... In chapter three of Genesis, they're given, they're given this one mitzvah. They're put in this wonderful garden, eat whatever you want. But the one tree, the tree of knowledge, the eight sadas, that one you don't touch. And of course, anytime we talk about Adam and Eve and the story of Genesis, we have to give the requisite disclaimers. It's a big subject. It's one of the biggest subjects of Jewish philosophy. But I want to zone in on one point as to what happens in the immediate aftermath 
of the sin. I don't want to talk about what went into the calculation behind the sin, what, what was really going on, what's the role of the serpent. What happens in the immediate aftermath of that sin? Because we know that the sin, the original sin of Adam and Eve, that set into motion everything else that ensued historically. We believe that our objective as a species is to reverse the sin of Adam, is to undo the sin of Adam and to restore the world to its idyllic utopian state that existed prior to that sin. And of course, the Torah, that's the engine that's going to drive that transformation. So therefore, if we examine what exactly happened in the immediate aftermath of that sin, we could isolate the core issue that we're trying to fix. So in chapter 3 of Genesis, we read about the sin. And immediately afterwards in verse 7, their eyes are opened. They recognize that they're naked. And they try to cover up with some leaves. And then they hear the voice of God in the garden. And they try to hide. Adam and his wife, they hide amidst the trees of the garden. And God calls out to Adam and says, where are you? Ayeka, where are you? And Adam responds, I heard your voice in the garden. I was scared because I was naked and therefore I hid. And God responds to him, well, who told you that you're naked? Did you eat from the tree that I told you not to eat from? Did, did you eat from that tree? And Adam responds, well, yeah, but the woman that you gave me she was the one who gave me from the tree and I ate. If you look at Rashi on verse 12 there, the woman that you gave me, Rashi uses the same formula, same words that the Bikurim is trying to undo. Rashi says, Khan Kafar Batova. Here in this statement, in this sentence, Adam displayed, manifested his ingratitude because he says to God, the woman that you gave me, it's your fault. It's not my fault. The woman that you gave me, she is the one who caused me to do the sin. So if we examine this story again, we're going to do it at a very superficial level because it's a very deep uh, subject as, you know, all the stuff in the beginning of Genesis have to be examined very deeply. Look at the commentaries. It's, it's so voluminous. I don't want to give over the impression that we're covering it from, from all its depth and breadth. But if we just examine the story, what characteristic is Adam and Eve manifesting? So I think the first one is heresy. They're trying to hide from God. Don't we believe that you can't hide from God? Isn't that bizarre? They're trying to hide from God as if ducking behind a tree is going to prevent God from knowing where you are. It's, this, this is the example. Like, you know, they're living as souls and now they're living as bodies. In the body mindset... You can't see behind an obstruction. So if I'm hiding behind the tree, God can't see me, right? We would call that heresy. Adam and Eve, their their perception of God's powers are now skewed. They've made God corporeal by assigning him the same limitations that humans have. Very odd. And what's the next thing that happens? God says, well, why do you eat from the tree? So he says, it's your fault. You caused it to me because you gave me this wife who caused all this trouble for me. Now, if we go back to the previous chapter, Adam is naming all the animals and he doesn't find a spouse for himself and he's so miserable, he's so despondent, he's depressed. And then the Almighty crafts Eve for him and he's so delighted. He's like, oh, this time it's a flesh for my flesh, a bone for my bone. I'm so happy. He was saved by God from a life of misery when God gave him Eve. Is Eve a good thing for Adam or bad thing? It's a fantastic thing for him. And now he's saying, no, it's, he's, he's displaying ingratitude to the great gift that God gave him. And of course, the third thing that Adam is manifesting is deflection of blame. He's refusing to accept culpability for his crime. God said, don't. He did. Who's responsible? Fess up. You're responsible. What does Adam do? He throws Eve under the bus. It's her fault. It's not my fault. I'm innocent as the driven snow. That's, that's what he's intimating here in, in, in this, in this dialogue. I want to point out something very wild. These three 
characteristics, the heresy, the ingratitude, and the refusal to accept blame, the refusal to admit guilt. These are three separate things, right? Heresy, ingratitude, refusal to accept guilt, three separate things, right? Right? Well, in Hebrew, you'll find something wild. All three of these seemingly disparate, separate, isolated characteristics all have the same name. Ain't that wild? The word in Hebrew for all these three things is called kefira. Kefira, when someone is a kofar, kefira is someone who is heresy, who has heresy. Heresy is kefira. When someone is kafutov, he's kofar betova, he is displaying a lack of appreciation. It's the same word kefira. And when someone is kofar akal, when someone deflects the blame, when someone declares they're innocent, that too has the same word. It's kind of wild. And I think you would miss this if you just read the story simply. Of course, you know, that's probably true with anything you read in the Torah. But I think what the Torah is hinting to us is that really there's one fundamental change that's happening to Adam and it's being manifested in different ways, but at its root, he's been changed as a result of this sin and it's been manifested in different fronts but it's the same undergirding issue. And I want to point out, by the way, the opposite of those three characteristics. When someone acknowledges God, when someone is displaying gratitude, and when someone is acknowledging their own guilt, that too has the same word in Hebrew, the word hodah. And again, by our first analysis, we would think they're different things, but then when we see that the Hebrew word for those three things are the same, it's telling us something very, very deep. The word hodah means to acknowledge guilt. It means to appreciate the good in others, both God and other people. Ergo, what it's telling us here is that the root of heresy is ingratitude. When someone is so selfish, so self-consumed, then they can't acknowledge their own guilt, because after all, they, they themselves, that's all, that's all they have in their life. That's what they value. That's the thing they hold in great esteem. They can't acknowledge their own guilt, and they can't acknowledge the good of others, both human and divine. It's the same thing. We call this, the Hebrew word for this, we would call this state, is what's called the Yetzahara. That's the Hebrew word for it. And of course, the sages tell us that when Adam eats from the, from the tree, the forbidden tree, he gets the Yetzahara. But the Yetzahara, what it does is it walls a person off from others. And therefore, they live in this little cocoon of selfishness. They're consumed with themselves. All they have is themselves. Nothing else matters. Nothing else can have any value. Not the Almighty and not other people. And thus, the first manifestation of the Yetzirah, again, he rejects his own God. I'm innocent. God cannot possibly do anything good for me. Because again, that that notion does not exist to someone who has only themselves in their little world. I think this is the essence of what we're struggling with in our lives. This is it. It's the after effects of Adam's sin are still alive and well within each and every one of us. That That's the state of humanity. And when we have Bikurim, when we have this mitzvah, what do we do? We're thanking God for the crops that he gave us. We're acknowledging that the Almighty is the one really manipulating it. He's the puppeteer. The fact that I planted seeds on the ground, it's not me who did it, it's God who did it. He was the one who brought those crops, not me. We settle the land, and only after we settle the land, and only after it's fully conquered and it is quieted, well, what do we have? We have a change. We're no longer living in this miraculous lifestyle with the manna falling from heaven, with the miraculous wars of conquest, now we're working the fields. So we've departed from the supernatural way of living, and now we're living in, in the normal world. What happens right when someone lives in the normal world? They put their sweat into their work, and they feel like they created those results. And they forget about God. And if we just zoom out a little bit, you'll notice like what happens to Adam. Right after he makes that sin... He's opening up the possibility for a world in which God does not dominate the perspective of man. 
And the money says, oh, is that what you want? I'll give that to you. You're going to have to work the field. You have to pull out all those weeds. After you pull out weeds from five acres of land and you sweat from morning to night for months, and what comes out of the ground? Some produce. Obviously, you're going to feel like this is me. This is not God who produced this. This is my work. This is my handiwork. Adam, you asked for it. You wanted to have the opportunity to obviate God. You wanted to open the world for heresy. Well, here you go. Here's heresy. Because when you are forced to invest so much into your livelihood, into the outcomes, you assume that those outcomes are driven by your own work and you forget about God. And here we have the whole nation is now living in, in, in the reality that we think. And the reality that we think can tolerate heresy. It can tolerate the notion that you indeed did create what you brought out with your field. And therefore, after the nation settled the land, after they are no longer living in a world where God cannot be denied, because if you have manna being delivered to your house, manna that is being parachuted to your door, you can't really ignore God. But now, when you have to work the field, you can't ignore God. So you're like Adam now. You've sinned, so to, so to speak. The conditions are changing where now it's possible for you to ignore God. Oh, now it's very important for you to make sure that you take the necessary steps to ensure that you still remember God and you don't live a life of ingratitude. You don't have all those factors that dominated Adam in the immediate aftermath of the sin. And therefore, we have this mitzvah of Bikurim, to again, to recognize God's dominion, to accept it, and to display gratitude and appreciation and acknowledgement of God, to allow the possibility that you are guilty, and to try to retrain yourself, to reframe your worldview in the perspective of truth, in the perspective of what's called hoda'ah, which is the opposite of kafira, and to do your part in reversing the consequences of Adam's sin. That is being manifested with the Bikurim, and therefore it makes a lot of sense when we're told that the Amayi created will be racist because of the things that are called racist, because this mitzvah really gets to the heart of the conflict of the malady that Torah is engineered to have us address. So I think, you know, if we were to take this perspective, it turns out that the concept of gratitude, it's more than just to be someone who's a good person by, you know, the, the standards of today to be, to be thankful, to not be entitled, to be appreciative. It's really getting at the heart of why we exist. It's why we live. We live a child, a baby's born. There is no one more selfish in the world than that baby. Because from a, from a spiritual perspective, the baby coming into this world is the equivalent, by leaving the spiritual world to coming here, it's the equivalent of Adam leaving the spiritual world to coming here. We're told, the Talmud tells us that the baby's born, the second baby's born, they get the Yitzhara. They get the little walled off life of selfishness. And the child is only cares about themselves. And the objective of life is to, is to kind of take that little chisel and to chisel away at the force that keeps us enclosed in our own little bubble, in our own little world, and to expose ourselves to other people. You know, we talk about marriage. The objective of marriage is to break a person's individual identity so that they create a merge, a new fused identity with their spouse. That's what, that's what it says in scripture. A person should leave the father and mother. Abandon your erstwhile identity, cleave to your wife, and become one flesh. So the challenge of, of marriage is the same thing that's being described over here because since the day you were born, you have the eight star that keeps you by yourself. And you're breaking out of that, having a wife, having a family, having children, being involved in a community, being thoughtful of other people. All those are little chinks in the armor, little chisel blows to the Yetzirah's edifice that he's creating around us. And once we're exposed, once we're our hearts been unleashed, well, then we're open to relationships with other people and to relationship with God. It's the Yetzirah that keeps us by ourselves, which prevents us 
from having a deep relationship with other people and a deep relationship with God. And one of the ways to break out of that little bubble, one of the ways to resist the the rigidity of the world that the Yetzirah paints for us is to show our appreciation. By doing that, we're directly attacking the infrastructure that's trying to keep us limited to that world of heresy, to the world of kafir, as we said, that the Yetzirah builds for us, to that worldview demonstrated by Adam immediately after the sin. And therefore, this idea really, it's really of a broad idea. It's, it's why we're here. It's why we have Torah. And of course, there's many, many examples of our great heroes displaying this hallmark of superlative appreciation and acknowledgement of the good of others. So for example, our sages tell us that Moses, the first, the second, and the third of the plagues, he didn't initiate it. Why? Because you had to hit either the earth of Egypt or the water of Egypt. And even though the water of Egypt, after all, is this good water or is this evil water? It's evil water because it swallowed, it drowned many Jewish baby boys. And therefore, if any water deserves to be smacked, it's the water of Egypt. Yet Moses, because when he was a little baby, he was floating all along that water. He has to show appreciation for that water. And therefore, Aaron's got to hit the water, not Moses. Similarly, the land of Egypt, the earth, the terra firma of Egypt, Moses, when he killed the Egyptian, the first episode that we see, read about Moses as an adult, he's an Egyptian striking a Jewish Hebrew of his brethren. What does he do? He kills him and he buries him in the sand. So he was saved by the earth of Egypt, inappropriate for him to hit the earth of Egypt. Talmud tells us that if you drink water from a well, it's inappropriate for you to throw a stone, to cast a stone into that well. And again, what this is telling us, is not that the well has feelings or the earth has feelings or the water has feelings. It's trying to train us to be appreciative, to it, to acknowledge the good, to have gratitude, even to inanimate things. It's not, it's not for them, it's for me. My worldview says I shouldn't have gratitude. I'm, I deserve all. I'm entitled to all. Gimme, 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 because I, I live in that little bubble. I live in that little cocoon. And my objective is to, to break out of those shackles that the eight Sarah creates for me. And even if the recipient of my gratitude is inanimate, cannot appreciate it, but it's going to change my perspective because now I'm training myself to see something beyond myself. And Moses, of course, is a great teacher for that. But there's many, many stories. Uh, the Talmud talks about stories, a great story in the Talmud. Uh, it's always a controversial one. Uh, one of the great rabbis, his wife, he was married to one of those women that um, are a nightmare, shall we say. It talks about how his wife would deliberately cause him pain. She would deliberately make the food he doesn't like. She would deliberately cause, and it's a story, you know, why would he cho- cho- choose this wife? Who knows? If anyone had a reason to repeat Adam's maxim about his wife, it would be this great rabbi, yet we we see how he's so appreciative of her. He loves her. Whenever he finds something nice, he wraps it and gift wraps it and brings it to her. And then people tell him, like, well, you know, listen, you got the short end of the stick. You you were married to this terrible woman, but why do you show so much appreciation and gratitude towards her? He says, well, yes, she's kind of terrible, but you know what? She does some good things for me. She saves me from sin. She helps raise my children. And I have to always show appreciation and gratitude, even for those little things. Yes, she's a nightmare. You know, he doesn't say, by the way, she's great. She says, yes, yeah, she's, she is kind of terrible. But you know what? I have to appreciate all, even the little things. But then I, I want to show you a midrash. To me, this was an eye-opening midrash. The very last verse of the very last chapter of Psalms. So Psalms is 150 chapters. The very last verse of all, of them all, is kol haneshama tehalel ka. Every soul should thank God. The word for soul is neshama, and the word for breath is neshima. Every time you breathe, you inhale, it's a neshima. So there's some sort of connection there between neshama and neshima. Every soul should praise God. Every soul should express its thanks to God. Says the Midrash. Every time you do a nishima, every time you inhale, you have to thank God. 
It's a wild thing. We think appreciation. You know what? If you, if you buy me a nice car, if you get me a fancy watch for my birthday, if you if you if you're really kind to me, then then it registers. Here we're we're being described a different worldview that even the things that we really take for all of us take for granted. Every breath, and you do this, what, 50, 80, 90, 10,000 times a day? So it's constant. It's all the time. This is a description of someone who's really broken out of those shackles, who is truly appreciative. Of course, to us, you know, maybe we should thank God once a day. Let's, let's, let's start with something more manageable. But we're being portrayed over here, a person who is living a lifestyle of appreciation, a lifestyle of gratitude, all the time, every time, everywhere. I heard a story of uh, a great rabbi who lived in New York, passed away in 2001. One of the great rabbis who I have lots of his books. Uh, his name was Rabbi Miller. But his grandson was once privy to the following very bizarre incident. He sees his grandfather walking over to a huge pot of water and dunking his head into it and keeping his head there for a long time. This is very unusual, very odd thing to see. And he's watching there from the corner what's going on over here. And after like 30, 40 seconds, his grandfather pulls his head out, <gasps> gives a big lungful of, of, of air and dunks his head in again. What's going on? Did Grandpa lose it? So after this whole strange episode is over, he goes over to his grandma and says, well, why did you just do that? So he tells him, he's like, we live in New York City. A lot of smog, a lot of pollution. This is before they cleaned it up. And someone was telling me, oh, the air is so gnarly and disgusting. There's so much smog and pollution. I can't stand the air. And you know what? I remember what our seat just tell us. Every time you breathe, you got to thank God. I don't want to lose my appreciation of air. So therefore, I'm going to dunk my head into the water. And after 30, 40 seconds, I'm going to ask myself, do you appreciate the air? Do you? And then I'm going to pull my head out. And then I'm going to make sure I'm going to restore my appreciation for the wonderful gift that the Almighty gives us, the perfect balance of oxygen and nitrogen and all that. Everything tailor-made for us to be able to flourish and to live and to breathe and to, and to enjoy life. To experience the wonderful gift of life, I don't want to lose my appreciation for that. And you know what? If you're underneath the water for a minute or two, even if it's smog and it's ew, it's gnarly, it's it's so muddy outside. I don't appreciate it. It's, it's muggy, right? Which is a legitimate criticism, shall we say, for the weather of Houston, Texas. Yes, that aside, th- there's an idea here that we're being that we're being shown is that someone can live a life of gratitude and that's going to open up their relationships with all other things that are outside of them. Of course, it starts with your spouse. It starts your relationship with the Almighty. It starts with your children. But ultimately, we see Moses. Moses cared for every single individual. Every person was like his own child. He describes himself as if he carried the nation, a whole nation, a nation of millions of people, as if they're all his children. We see Abraham. What does Abraham do? Abraham is engaging in this incessant plea for the sinners of Sodom and Gomorrah. Let the sinners die. Abraham is breathlessly, at the age of of nearly 100 years old, recently undergoing a very complicated and painful surgery. He's trying to run and run and run to help feed the strangers, the pagan strangers. How does someone become someone so selfless? Where does that start? What's the first step to becoming that great person that we see, the great heroes that are being portrayed in the Torah that we look up to? This is what you do. This is where you start. You got to start tackling bit by bit that little wall or the big wall, shall we say, that prison, if you will, of ingratitude in which we begin life with. No one's going to blame us for being in gracious, because that's the way we start our lives. However, the objective is, and the 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 focus of Torah and the Barashas, the, the very beginning, it's to break out of that a little bit by bit. The Almighty creates us, our soul, with two halves. It's us, 
It's our spouse. We could have been someone like Adam was initially. It was a, it was like a, this Siamese twin of Adam and Eve, two sides of one whole. But no, we're, we're separate. And then we have to kind of, when, when two people from two different backgrounds living two selfish lives, so to speak, come together, there's going to be that acclamation. There's going to be that conflict. And the hope is, is that by breaking down those barriers to be able to connect to your spouse, that will be the beginning of a lifelong pursuit of selflessness, of gratitude, of appreciation. I could say personally that my grandmother of blessed memory, who I have the privilege of naming my daughter Rivka after, she was someone that exemplified this. I remember like when she would drink a cup of tea, old people love tea, especially old European Jews. She would drink a cup of tea. After every sip, she would say, ah, Kamatov, oh, how wonderful this is. I, I, I personally remember that. Then she, she would always tell us, anytime you, anything, anytime something good happens to you, say Haidu. What does Haidu mean? Haidu means thank God. She would train us. Every time something good happens to you, appreciate it. You're enjoying a, a glass of tea. You're enjoying, you're enjoying a, a cup of coffee. Appreciate it. Acknowledge it. What a wonderful life we can live in. My mother used to tell us the story of one of the mentors, shall we say, of our family. He was a, uh, very special man. His name was Rabbi Mordechai Schwab. In fact, my youngest brother Mordechai is named after him. Apparently, he was a very remarkable, just a wonderful person. And when he would have to throw out uh, used garments, he would do it very slowly and very gently. And the same idea that to show appreciation even to inanimate things. So I remember my mother would say, when when you let's say you have a pair of shoes that got holes in them, you got a new pair of shoes. You got to thank your shoes. She would tell us this, this, which sounds strange. I think if you would just announce this, like if this was the bumper sticker, we thank our shoes before we trash them it would sound odd. But with this perspective, it makes a lot of sense. Training yourself to be appreciative, not because the object of that appreciation matters, because you matter, because your life has changed when you adopt the lifestyle of appreciation. So she would tell us, if you don't throw a pair of shoes, you put it in a bag, wrap it nicely. And you say thank you to it before you trash it. I still tell my kids to do this. Why? Because it's, it's, it's opening up those little portals out to the grand world to appreciate those things and to stop being entitled and to stop being an ingrate. I think there's a fascinating set of verses in Deuteronomy chapter 23. It's talking about the various different nations that our nation interacted with. So we have the nations of Ammon and Moab. These descend from Lot, Lot's children. And then we have, of course, the Egyptians. And we've had different interactions with these various nations. So the verse tells us that an Ammonite and a Moabite convert may not intermarry amongst the Jewish people. Why? Because when we were leaving Egypt... And we encountered these nations, they did not reach out to us with bread and water, and therefore, they're not good candidates to cleave to the Jewish people. There's a very interesting Ramban here. The Ramban, this is again chapter 23 of Deuteronomy, the Ramban says that you would think that this has to do with kindness, that they're not kind. He says, no, this has to do with ingratitude. Someone has a lack of kindness? That could be dealt with. When someone has such egregious, fundamental ingratitude, Amunamo, those nations would only exist. They only existed because Abraham prayed for Lot to be saved from Sodom and Gomorrah. They only exist because of our forefather. And they don't display the most minimal sense of appreciation, of gratitude to us, even to just give us bread and water, the basics. That shows there's something fundamentally corrupt about this people, and we don't want them to cleave to our nation. And you contrast that with a verse, several verses later, this is verse 8. The verse tells us that other nations, the nations of Edom, which is from Esau, and the nation of Egypt, those we shouldn't abhor. We shouldn't totally reject. Why? Because we were strangers, the Egyptians, or vis-a-vis the Egyptians, we were strangers in their land. Says Rashi, even though 
the Egyptians, that sojourn that we had in their land was pretty painful. It's pretty, you know, we suffered a lot under their hands. Nevertheless, when we had a need in our time of, of, of despair, when Joseph was brought down to Egypt, when his family, when there was a, when there's a famine, we all came down to Egypt. This land showed us some degree of hospitality. Of course, it didn't work out so well later on. We were enslaved, but we did experience hospitality from them. Therefore, forever, when we have an Egyptian convert, we cannot abhor them. We have to welcome them because we, our nation is built on this fundamental principle. We show appreciation for the good that was done to us. So I think studying these sources really shows us the power and the the critical importance, the paramount importance of this characteristic. And I think maybe a good way or a good exercise to begin or to to start focusing on this, there's probably a lot of ways to do it. But my grandfather, blessed memory, he used to say that if someone wants to start a spiritual journey, of course, everyone wants to know, where, where's the roadmap? Give me the idiot's guide to becoming a tzaddik, to becoming righteous. So he said, okay, the first step that you got to do is to make a big deal out of blessings. Our sages tell us that the Jewish day is structured, is organized around blessings. You're supposed to make a hundred blessings every day. And that's a very significant number. The, with the prayers and with the blessings before we eat, after we go to the bathroom, other experiences that we have, we, 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 we bless. But the essence of a blessing is appreciation. And therefore, that first step to any journey of spiritual ascension is to notice. Again, when we're living in the cocoon of selfishness, we don't notice. It's to appreciate, to stop being an ingrate, to stop to display entitlement, to say nothing is a given. If I have breakfast, that's not a given. That's a gift of God. It's like it's like a mini Bikurim offering. When you stop and acknowledge the goodness that you have, you recognize that everything's a gift. That's the key to cracking out of that little cocoon of selfishness. I want to point out the Talmud, very difficult Talmud, I would say, for us, certainly for us, the Talmud tells us that we have to recognize and thank God even when bad things happen to us. We have to really recognize truly that when bad things happen to us, that they're truly good. In fact, the, the Talmud tells us something very, I think, very difficult for us to, to think about and to certainly to, to, to observe. The Talmud tells us the book of, of Brachos, page 60b, a person is obligated to bless God with the same joy with the same appreciation and delight when bad things happen to them as when good things happen to them. So someone has a tragedy, there's a blessing that you're supposed to say when you when you have it, when you experience, when you undergo a tragedy. Dayan ha'emet, the righteous, the true judge. You have to say that with the same joy that you would say when something fantastic happens. You win the lottery, you're joyous, you thank God, you suffer a tremendous tragedy you also have to say a blessing, and you have to find some way to experience joy in that blessing as well. I want to point out that my great-grandfather, Rabbi Abraham Grudzinski, was one of the towering rabbinic and spiritual figures of pre-war European Jewry. His wife died when she was very young. She left him, I think, with, uh, with eight orphans. The youngest one was a year old. And of course, after something like that happens, terrible tragedy, the loss, the halacha states, he's supposed to say a blessing to thank God or to acknowledge God's righteousness and judgment. We don't know why God does what he does. We don't know. Our perspective, our, our vistas are infinitesimally tiny compared to God, of course. But it's still very hard to say joyously, thank God, or to acknowledge God's righteousness. Yet the Talmud says that you have to, you have to say it with joy. So he waited two days before he said the blessing so he could have some experience, some modicum of settling, so to speak, coming to peace with this and experiencing a little bit of joy of what the Talmud's describing. Yeah, but this is very advanced for us. The idea of thanking God for bad things, 
it's very difficult for us. I would say that we should probably start, let's suffice with acknowledging, with recognizing, with noticing, with appreciating the unambiguously good, both when that is the product of another person's kindness and generosity, and certainly when it's the product of God's kindness and generosity, God's benevolence. Every time you breathe, that is not a given. Every time your heart pumps, it's not a given. It's a gift from God. And of course, the fact that we start off life as being entitled, that's by design. That's a feature, not a bug. That's all of humanity. But that is why we're here. We're here to adopt the pure mindset, to adopt the appreciation and gratitude mindset, to live a life of thanksgiving, to stop taking things for granted, to make that blessing, to say this glass of water, it's a gift of God. God loves us. He cares for us. You have that, that breath of fresh air. You thank God. Of course, the advanced levels is every day, every second, of course. But our initiation, our first step is going to be to think about this subject. Maybe if we don't do a hundred blessings every day with appreciation, with gratitude, let's do one a day. Let's do one a week. Let's stop once a week and say, the Almighty loves us and the Almighty gives us something good. Once a week, find something nice that your spouse did for you and say, I really appreciate that. Once a week, thank someone for their kindness, for the generosity. And again, it's not about them. It's about, it's about you are recreating the spiritual world in which you live. Like I said, Thanksgiving, it's not a Jewish holiday, but it's a very good time for us to stop and look at what our sages tell us. Look at what the Torah tells us about this very critical, fundamental subject of, of spiritual Greatness, we're in this shell, we're in the cocoon, it's cozy maybe because we have ourselves, but ultimately the money wants us to become great people. And the only way to become a great person is if you break out of that little cocoon of both heresy and ingratitude of the aftermath of Adam's sin and you become more in the model of Abraham, of Moses, of what the Torah wants us, of what Bikurim is, is outlining to us, for us to become a person who appreciates others, who has opened up their worldview, their outlook to things beyond themselves. This will extend to every area of our lives. It will make our lives more pleasurable. It will make our relationships more valuable. It will make our interactions with other people more memorable, more, more our relationships more cherished. It will help us in all areas of life. Again, this is at the core of it all. This is the key to unlocking our spiritual destiny. This was an absolute joy and a pleasure to study with you all today. My email address is rabbiwolby at gmail.com. And don't forget to go to our website, torchweb.org, and get your free torch Shabbat light switch covers, your free mitzvah magnets, torchweb.org, and we will send you your very own torch Shabbat light switch covers, your very own mitzvah magnets.